Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It, this, it was a, I mean, this big, big news this week. What is it? Beyonce dropped a new album. I mean, you could not have asked for better timing. I mean, this is a singular talent in our generation and a cultural influence. And last week, I started a two-part message. And I started by saying that so much of art and pop culture and music it, 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 it wrestles with these incredible themes that these, this two-part message is doing, is talking about. And, and she drops her album like we coordinated it. And so I spent some time with Beyonce this week. And, um, and at least uh, by reading through the lyrics on most of the songs. By the way, the beats are, as you could imagine, extremely uh, catchy, contagious, even. Uh, but she did not disappoint when it comes to uh, the point that I was making in that most of the songs have very similar themes. So she presses even deeper, it seemed, this time. She, she mentions God, a little bit of church. There are even some sort of existential moments as if she's sort of wrestling with, with human meaning and I was like, oh, this is, this is gold. This is incredible. She did, this was a gift that she gave me this week. Then I started looking for the word love, which is one of my points was that I was making, is that it just shows up, I think, more than half, maybe even three quarters of the songs wrestle with these themes. It's, it's all around us. Maybe, a do, maybe half a dozen different ways she uses the word love itself. Because these are the things that matter most to us. I'm not saying we get it right most of the time. I'm just saying these are the things that matter most to us. Because this, this is what our hearts were made for. Now, last week, I broad-brushed some comments about um, Spanish songs. Because, you know, I'm, I'm half Hispanic. My mother is Spanish and uh, Puerto Rican. And so I'm half Hispanic, but I never learned the language. And I made, I made some crack that I couldn't understand the song because it was Spanish, but I was pretty sure it was about a sexy woman. All right, so the staff gave me some grief this week. They're like, Robert, you can't say stuff like that. It's like broad brushing. It isn't appropriate. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I should, and, you know, I really shouldn't broad brush. So I went this week, and I looked at the Billboard Top 100 Latin songs of all time to see what the, the Latin pop singers were. And I'll just let you do the research on your own because <laughs> um, it, was, it was enlightening uh, what my people are uh, really, really good at. And so uh, anyway, uh, once again, those who are in a culture like this, we, you know, they're, they're, it's easy for us to say, we, we, we hear about, we talk about, we think about these things all the time. We must know a lot about it. We must be able to, to really understand what love is all about, what, what, what these emotions are all about that we wrestle with. 
and with the amount of time and energy that humanity puts into writing about love or, or thinking or talking about love or griping about love, crying about love, you would think that we would be experts in love. And yet society, it seems as a whole, often does feel somehow loveless. And many people don't get to experience or even practice even a hint of genuine Christian love. This is a terrible tragedy. Our souls are crafted to love and to be loved in its deepest recesses, but we don't. So we're going to jump back into this text and see how God is challenging us to push the limits of love, to really understand and to begin to apply it in our lives in a way that is somewhat countercultural. But I want to review a little bit because this is a two-part message. It's a two-part message because there was a lot to cover and Chris Bell will not let me do an hour and a half message. And so I don't understand why. I've been asking her for it for like months now, but she says, no, I got to keep it in the time frame. So last week we started with the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, and we saw that he said, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the part that was so interesting is he, t- he tells you all these things. If I speak, if I have, if I have, if I give, if I give. He's saying, listen, everything that we do, all of these things that we do, that we're attached to, that we, that we find our worth and our value in, all of these accomplishments, if we do all of them, it's just, it's like useless noise or worse. And we talked about it in the context of if you have everything, but you don't have love, you actually end up with nothing. And this is what's so challenging about this particular version of it that Paul gives to us is that he isn't talking about the selfish, uh, harsh uh, kinds of things. He actually is, is talking about a whole lot of things that we would consider good things. He's not saying, you know, if you're greedy and if you're immoral, that's, that's terrible and that's useless. He's already established that in the rest of the letter. This part, he goes after the things that we would consider to be very valuable, wisdom and knowledge self-sacrifice, things that we would look at and say, these are loving kinds of things. And he's saying, listen, you can do all of those kinds of things. And if you do all of these kinds of things, hard work, great achievements, financial security, if you do all of them in a self-centered way, you end up with nothing. You end up with nothing. He actually highlights that in the same text. He says, If you don't have love, if you don't have love, if you don't have love, I am nothing. So I want you to take out, if you could, that three by five card that was on your seat with the pen. And on the top half of the card, leave room on the bottom half of it. Let's summarize the first part of 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, I am nothing. Without love, I am nothing. In some ways, it sounds like an exaggeration on Paul's part. 
And yet when you begin to see how he unpacks what true love is really all about, what genuine Christian love is all about, you realize we, we, we are so far from this truth because everything about ourselves, about the culture is pushing us further and further away from the biblical descriptions and challenge of love. We start to turn back into it and we get to start to experience a type of love that humanity was made for. Now, I want to jump into the last third of the chapter for just a minute because this is kind of where we're going to end up going. And in the last third, he's raising the stakes by reminding us that the only thing that we bring into eternity is genuine Christian love. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, remember, this is good stuff, man, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When completeness comes is talking about the end times. It's when Jesus returns and, and heaven and earth become one. The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, they, they join together and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and, and, and here we are ruled and reigning and, and, and God is, is uh, in the midst and, and we, need no, we have no need for the sun anymore because the whole world has been made new. That's when completeness comes. And he's saying that when completeness comes, when, when Jesus returns, all of these things, even the great things that we value, they end up passing away. They end up disappearing. And that's actually where we are headed as followers of Jesus. In fact, you could say that's what we're doing here, is we're beginning to train for that. We're doing the kind of work and experiencing the kind of life and interacting in the kinds of ways that will mark us for all of eternity. And this is a really kind of an exciting idea, but he captures it with this imagery of being a child. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. So now things are, it's just a little bit, Corinth had a great uh, brass industry and they had these actually pretty excellent mirrors for antiquity. He's saying, listen, that, it's more than that. We're going to see something way more beautifully, way more clear. And something about the difference between what childhood is like and what adulthood is like captures this maturing process. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. And so when, when you think about you know, boys becoming men and girls becoming women, we, it, what the main shift that takes place, really what a bunch of parenting is about, is, is trying to get people, our children, little people, to focus on others. It's a big part of parenting. And so from the very beginning, we tell our kids, hey, hey, don't grab that. Hey, you have to share. Hey, you, this is, listen, you can't just grab everything. You gotta, other people are here, you know. You're in a store and a kid's screaming and you're like, no one else is enjoying this. You have to stop that. Look at the people around you. And we're trying to give them an awareness that focusing on others matters. When they get a little older, we're like, hey, you know, you said that thing to your friend, but like you, 
You, did you ever think about how they would feel like when, when you said that? We want you to think about their feelings. We want you to step out of yourself for just a minute and put yourself in their shoes and say, how do you think they felt when, when that happened to them? A big part of parenting is just this. So this week I've been thinking about this. So I've been on the lookout for ways that we as people have decided not to leave childish things behind. And uh, I found a few. It was 2 a.m. Cheryl and I woke up to loud music. And I was like, I think that's our outdoor speaker. I think somehow our speaker got, got on and I think we are waking up the neighborhood at 2 a.m. I was mortified. I was like this, I can't believe it. So I jump out of bed. Cheryl's trying to figure out if it's our speaker. I run downstairs. It's not our speaker. I'm so happy. I'm like, okay, all right. I don't need to explain this. The neighbors are blaming on it, someone else. Uh, and so I, uh, I say, you know, I'm gonna, I gotta go see who this is because people could think it's us. And so, you know, I, I walk around the corner uh, down the block because it sounds like it's a few houses down and I just want to see which of the neighbors is doing this. Uh, and then I, um, I, I w- keep walking. I can't find it. They're not on there. I walk all the way down the street. I get to Cherry Lane. I cross Cherry Lane. I walk over to Old Country Road. I still haven't found it. I'm walking down Old Country Road now. This is 2 a.m. I'm past Trader Joe's. The music is getting louder. Chateaubriand. A raucous party. I mean, the parking lot at DSW, the parking lot at Staples, people were full, like kind of pulling in and out. I was like, this is crazy. I think all of Carl Place could have heard that party that night. I think it was like a Wednesday night or something. It was like midweek or something like this. I was like, wow, this is, this is such an example. We go to the aquarium. They're tour groups. They're screaming at their group. And I know why. They're trying to keep their kids contained, certainly. But there was a guy trying to give a lecture about otters. And you could barely hear what he was saying. This poor guy, he worked on his lecture. He's here for work. And people are screaming around him. And you're like, what is he saying about otters? And, you know, some people want to know about otters. And I was like, but, the, but of course, the people who are doing it, they're not even aware. They don't even realize they're stepping on the people that want to know about otters and the people that want to talk about otters because, of course, they're busy doing their thing. Here's the irony on that one. They're doing their thing, which is taking care of other people, making sure they don't lose any kids so they can get back to the parents. Wow, what a competing value we have that we see there. So I park my truck on the street. I got a big truck. I park it in front of my neighbor's driveway on the other side of the, dr- of the street. But my truck's so big, he has to nearly K-turn into his driveway. He can't just like make the turn in. He can't back out. He's got to like do it like three times. I'm like, wow. I ne- never know. I just, eh, let me just park where I want. And you know, everyone else, the world can just deal with it. Because I'm wrapped up in my own stuff. Humanity is so self-obsessed. You want proof? Spend some time with the Beyonce lyrics. Or just look around when you're driving, when you're you're at the store, or better yet, look inside. Look inside. It's a challenging and somewhat disturbing look. There was a scholar I was reading this week, and he said that the process of moving from childhood to adulthood was the process of dethroning 
the self. Dethroning the self. When I think about that, it makes me want to summarize the last part of this chapter by saying, love decenters the self. You're taking the self out of the middle of the story. You're decentering yourself in relation to the world. So take out your card if you would. And on the bottom half, now we have the first and the third great truth from 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, I am nothing. Love decenters the self. Now, I want to blast through a little bit of what we spoke about last week. But if you want any of the cultural or geographic background, you got to check out last week's message. But the point that I had made was that the whole of 1 Corinthians 13 has been, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 has been pointing uh, to this great truth. 1 Corinthians 13, the love poem. But everything about the grammatical structure of 1 Corinthians was getting us there. So all the way from 11 to 14, these are the outsides of the ring composition. Again, I went over this last week, so I won't develop it too much now. But the structure itself was pointing to this great moment. And even within this, we find a section of seven different descriptors of love, but in the negative. What love does not look like. This is one of the reasons why scholars say this is a great challenge and a great test for us. We get to think about the things that Paul is, how Paul is describing love, and we get to say, all right, what, how, does the, how do these manifest in my life? What does this look like? He's just explained it to the Corinthians. He's been working it through all of this with them for all of this time, and now he's bringing it down to these very simple, very short phrases with one in particular sitting at the middle, which, of course, as we said last week, was love was not self-seeking. It is the middle of the middle of the middle of the middle of the whole message, and that's because it is perhaps one of the great major threads that sits right in the middle of the whole of the Christian life, is that we need to decenter the self. All right, now we're going to get into it. Now, this translation of 1 Corinthians 13 is an amalgam of a few different places, and so you won't find this exact translation uh, elsewhere, but I wanted to highlight a couple of pieces with it, so I, I pieced it together through a few different uh, through a few different. So turn your card over if you would. We're going to write out this whole thing right small because there's quite a few phrases we'll be running through. Love is graciously patient. And this is such an important idea. We, we usually, we know this if you've memorized 1 Corinthians 13 in the past is love is patient. There's something very cool here of these phrases. There are two words that can be translated as patient, but they're very different words. They're both compound words. But this one here is this idea of moving far away from anger. And this is what the strong do. This is what people with power do. This is what people with authority do. We get to move away from our anger. So we're frustrated, we're angry, you've disappointed, and I have the power to hurt you. And Paul is telling us, you, you move away from your anger. And that's a, that's a type of patience. Interestingly, the last phrase we're going to look at is also a word for patience. Again, he's bracketing this whole section to say patience is going to be one of the key values. But in that case, he talks about, it's a compound word that refers to 
bearing up under the weight of something. And that's what the weak do. When, when power is turned against you, when you're suffering, when your health begins to degrade and you have to bear up under this, if there's some unjust kind of suffering going on in your life, then you have to bear up under it. And that's a different type of patience. And Paul is saying the whole of what you're learning here about decentering yourself is going to be surrounded by this great value of uh, this virtue of patience, which of course is a decision we make. So love is graciously patient. So if you're able to bury someone in an argument, if you're able to withhold money to manipulate them with your position of authority, if you can punish or isolate, he's saying, no, 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 move away from your anger. Be graciously patient. If you want to, you want to ask someone, ask the people closest to you, ask your, your spouse, ask your kids if this marks you. If you're a graciously patient kind of a person. I hear some snickering. That wasn't good. Some are like, I'm not asking them that question. There isn't a chance I'm asking them that question. The next phrase, and invests in the well-being of others. This is typically translated as kind. Love is kind. But it's a, it's a unique word. And in our version of kind, it's kind of like wishy-washy a little bit. It's a little milk toast of a word. And so... And so I'm, I'm kind of teasing it out a little bit because to be kind means to use your resources to benefit others, to their well-being. And so sometimes we think kind is like just, uh, you know, uh, stepping out of someone's way when they're carrying a box. And that's, that's a version of kind, but does it cost you something? Are you willing to dig into your resources, your money, your time, your emotional credits? Are you willing to dig into those and offer them up to another person for their well-being. And if you are, then you're investing in the well-being of others. The next phrase is love doesn't burn with envy. Love doesn't burn with envy. And this is a, this is a painful one, I think, for uh, many folks. I was reading a, an Arabic Christian, and he was telling a story. There's like a kind of like their old version, I guess the version of a, of a meme nearly back in the day. And he said there was a saying, that, a little story they would tell to, uh, to kind of get at this idea of envy. And he said that a Mercedes was driving through uh, this town and uh, there was a Lebanese capitalist there. And the Lebanese capitalist said, one day I will drive a car like that. One day, I'm gonna work hard, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want that for me. The car keeps driving through town, it gets to the other side of town, and there's a Syrian socialist there. And the Syrian socialist says, one day we are going to drag that dog out of that car and beat him. Because no one should have that, while the rest of us have nothing. And his point was that in that culture, these are both manifestations of envy. I was like, wow, <laughs> that sounds like us today, here in America, in very different way, but in exactly the same way. And we tend to look at the other person and think that they're the envious ones, and yet the value shows up on both sides of that equation. 
When somebody gets the latest and the greatest, are you happy for them? Are you sad for yourself? We notice when the cool, what the cool kids are all wearing and we lament that we are not. Do we get frustrated at our parents who don't provide it for us? Or do we get frustrated at God for not blessing us the way he has blessed others? We're not to burn with envy. The idea isn't that envy itself has these, like you, it's not like you should envy a little, but don't burn with envy. I think he's saying when you envy, you're burning already. You're, you're, you're seething on the inside. In fact, you're being consumed from the inside because of your envy. By the way, pastors are terrible about this. The idea, when you hear, when, if you get a bunch of pastors together and they start talking about their churches, they're like, oh man, how did it go? Hey, how was Easter for you? Hey, did you have any big events? Your vacation Bible school, what was that about? And before, everyone wants to know the size, the numbers. The, what, I, had, I had remember one guy asking me, what is the uh, per capita giving? I was like, I, I don't know. We don't track stuff like that. You guys track a lot of stuff. I'm like, that doesn't even, I don't even understand the metric. But like there, there is such a tendency that we have in every part of life. He says, love doesn't brag and isn't puffed up with its own importance. That's the next one. It doesn't brag and isn't puffed up. The uh, idea here, of course, is... Uh, fairly straightforward, but I think it's helpful for us to think about how to diagnose it in our own lives. And so if someone is telling a story, are you able to thoroughly enter into it and enjoy that story? Or are you thinking about your great story? Are you already kind of loading up your story? If somebody tells you a version of a story and you have one that's like it, but just a little better, is there just, it's irresistible, isn't it? Let me just explain, oh yeah, that was good, but, but, but you should hear what happened to me. I think this is, he's telling us, this isn't what love does. It's so easy for us to find ways to self-promote. I think if you want to have a quick diagnostic as to whether we are puffed up with our own importance, we can ask the question as to whether or not we can say, I'm sorry. These feel related to me. If, if you know you've done something wrong, are you able to just say, you know what, that is wrong. That was rude. That was mean. That was, uh, I should not have done that. And you know, I'm sorry. I was, because if you're not able to say that, you might be puffed up with your own importance a little bit. You might have this game where you say, yeah, yeah, I might have messed that up, but they messed up this. And that was such a serious offense to me. Because of the seriousness of their offense, I'm not, I'm not going to grant, admit, move into that place where I'm the one saying I'm sorry. Unless you're saying you're sorry in order to force them to say they're sorry. That's like next level strategizing in the emotional realm. And so that's like really, I wouldn't say that's high EQ. It's actually low EQ, but it's certainly high skill in this game. And so if you're saying it just to get another response out of them, I would also say you might be puffed up 
with your own importance. I love this word too because he uses it throughout Corinthians. He used it earlier to say, you know, this is the picture. Like we make ourselves bigger than we ought, bigger than we really, really are. The next one is a, a neat little phrase. He says, it isn't rude. And the reason I like this one is it seemed a little bit out of place at first because I kept reading a bunch of different uh, commentaries on it, dictionaries. I was like, what does this mean? What is we getting? And it, it's rude. But we don't really have a category for this as much anymore. Like people can do and say whatever they want, whenever they want, and they can act the way they want and do it. But, but the scriptures are still talking about this thing of thing, it's rude. You can be rude. And so when you're talking about basic manners or cultural norms, and then I started remembering, that's what we covered back in earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's actually possible to be rude even today. Now, what would it look like is going to take a great deal of introspection because I almost never think I'm rude. And I think most people feel that way. So how is it that we can start to evaluate whether we are rude or not? So would you be willing to adjust the way you speak or your use of technology or the way you dress or the kinds of jokes made? Would you be willing to make these kinds of adjustments in order to respect and honor another person? Seems like a nice, simple way. How about how you talk about people when they're not there? That might be another way for us to kind of go after this idea a little bit. Now, how do we, we treat the people who aren't around us? What do we say about them? How do we speak about our boss or our, or our spouse or our kids or coworkers or, or something like that? What, what is it that marks the way we talk when people aren't there? Maybe that's an indication of, of rudeness in our hearts. He also, and this is kind of the center of it, love isn't preoccupied with its own interests not preoccupied with its own interests. I think for me, this is one of the more challenging ones because I feel like I'm supposed to be preoccupied with my own interests. And I think my interests are important. That's why I'm interested in them. And so if I'm doing these things, it feels like I ought to be doing these things. And if I'm doing them for work, if I'm doing them for Beacon, if I'm doing them for my family, even more so, it's not even me anymore. I'm doing it for others. And so it was, yeah, it was Saturday morning and I, was, I set aside a few hours to continue to work on uh, the message. And I had a lot going on that day. My task list was very, very long yesterday. And uh, a lady is walking her dog down the street. And my dog, Pepper, she runs out. She starts barking. She, I come over. I'm like, oh, I'm like, you know, I know the dogs, they want to meet. And so she lets her dog, you know, come up and meet Pepper. And then we just start chit-chatting and talking. And she can talk. And that's something coming from me. And it took me like a full five minutes, maybe ten before I could leave what I was doing behind and actually listen, actually engage. I, I was literally writing a message on not being self-interested 
And I could not stop thinking about my stuff. And when I did, finally, it kept intruding back in, by the way. We had this beautiful conversation. And I, I have a complete stranger opening up and telling me a life story. And I was like, wait, is this a glimpse of what the world ought to look like? Maybe even what the world would look like if even just followers of Jesus would begin wrestling with this one great idea that that genuine Christian love is not preoccupied with its own interests. This applies to our politics and it applies to how we work and how we respond when our accomplishments will go unnoticed or whether or not we're constantly thinking, what's in it for me? Are people a means to an end? It impacts all of these things. And then he says to us, love isn't irritable. (laughs) So are you gracious with those that you disagree with? When your coworkers or your boss takes credit for that thing you did, do you fly off the handle, even if it is behind the scenes? somebody makes a mistake, what does that do to you inside? Do you easily get frustrated when you're listening to a situation and no one's taking your advice? Now I'm irritated. He says it keeps no record of how it's been wrong. This is an accounting term, by the way. So he's saying, you know, we're not, we're not making lists. We're not keeping track. We're not trying to balance out the spreadsheet. Keeps no record of wrong. If it is hard for you to forgive, if you live by the motto, I don't get mad, but I get even. When you're in an argument and you can't help but keep rehashing the past, You might be keeping an accounting of how you have been wronged. He goes to tell us here, he doesn't find wrongdoing pleasurable, but joyfully celebrates the truth. And I think this would apply to all types of entertainment, the things that we fill our our minds with, the things that we celebrate in another person's downfall. It's seeing wickedness or evil, a wrong, a hard, the, uh, these hard things around us and us saying, hmm, that's all right. When you see a political rival crash and burn and you smile instead of mourn at evil in the world. I think that's what he's trying to get at here. We take we find wrong, what love doesn't, doesn't find wrongdoing pleasurable. Then he has this quick little series at the end. They're all linked together grammatically. He says, it never stops protecting. And this is an idea that has a, a covering over it. And so, you know, sometimes uh, we, we talk about this idea that love covers a multitude of sin. It's a very biblical idea that there is a way that we can actually we can actually turn away from and turn aside from. We can, in some ways, we can just let the love that we have for the people around us just cover. And we're, we're protecting the community and we're protecting the relationships. 
We let our love cover. Never stops protecting. It never loses faith and it never exhausts hope. And these are phrases, if you notice, he's gonna go into that in a little bit, the faith and hope and the greatest of these is love, faith, hope, and love. And so he's, he's starting to end this section here by saying, listen, there is a way that we will trust in God through all of this. There is a way for us to hold fast, to remember that he is the, the author and the finisher of our faith. There is, when, when you are helping someone and they continue to fail you, when you've invested in them and they continue to, to disrupt the relationship, this kind of love says, I'm gonna continue to have faith and I'm continue to have hope. I am gonna continue to sit in this space with God that says, you are a good God and you are powerful and you can do incredible things in this person's life. Never exhausts hope. It never gives up. That's that word that I started with when it talked about patience. It's the one that bears up under anything that presses down hard upon you. And so here is the gist of what Christian love looks like. This while considered one of the greatest statements of love ever written in literature, it captures for us a distinct and genuine Christian type of love that is as deep as it is wide. And I think it's helpful for, helpful for us to realize that in its context, this would have been seen by the Corinthians as a near diagnostic tool. He had already explained all of the ways that they had violated these norms and now he's framing for them a way of living among the people of God and as people of God in this world. And he's saying, this is what we could be. This is who we could be in this world. Others have noted that you could put the word Jesus in every time it says love and this is Jesus walking off the pages of the Bible for us. This is who he was and it's how he lived and it's why we get to follow his example. And so I wanna encourage you, it was years ago, I remember Max Licato saying that we cannot wait for tomorrow. We are always, we are always responsible to do something today because every day is Today And the greatest enemy we have is the promise of someday. Because we tell ourselves that someday I am going to do this. Someday I'm going to write that apology. Someday I'm going to pick up the phone and call that person. Someday I'm going to put my stuff aside and enter fully and completely into this moment. Someday... I'm gonna figure out what it means to live below my means so others can have what they don't currently have someday. And we, have, we use this promise of someday to do nothing today. Lucado, he was, he was saying, the problem with this is, of course, we already know it. Someday is often the enemy of extravagant and risky love because someday will often never come. Today is the only day that we have. It is the only day that we are promised. 
So we have to invest the time and we have to do that thing and we have to live that way knowing full well that we are maturing into the type of love that Christ has modeled for us and that he has promised to make real and manifest in our hearts through the power of the Spirit. So let's do that more and more as the people of God, as the community of faith, that we might show the love of Christ to a world that is in desperate need of it. Would you pray with me? Lord, what we're asking here is that we would take this incredibly deep and rich truth about your heart, about your nature, about what what you value, and we would begin to apply it more and more. Father, when we have tasted of these things, we have known that it was good. When we've experienced these things, it has brought a deep-seated joy. Even in the midst of hardship, Lord, when we experience these things, we go, this is the way it ought to be. This is right. And when we press against the, the values of our culture, not with hostility, but Lord, when we press against them with your kind of love, we see lives get put back together and we see marriages strengthened, we see kids built up, we see communities get to be turned around. I pray, Lord, that we would use these great truths, that we would commit them to memory, that we would, we would keep this card until these truths are woven through our souls where they become second nature, the reborn nature, the nature that the Spirit is creating in us as part of who we are meant to be. We're praying, Lord, that you would do this Individually, you would do it as a community and that together we would strengthen and encourage each other toward this great end. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.